Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight, it's Targets from 1968, proving that Peter Bogdanovich is not only funny, he's also terrifying. A typical American family at dinner. Mom and dad, their beautiful daughter-in-law, and their only son, Joe. A homicidal maniac. How's your dad? It's okay. There you go. Thanks a lot. So Targets, Pete, par- Targets came out in 1968. We are doing this series of films uh, from 1968 that are crime films. That is the particular series that we're in right now. But it also connects to this overarching idea that we had for the fall, where we are looking at films and series that that began in 1968 um, because it's their 50th anniversary. And in the case of the crime films, I think part of the reason we went with this is because 1968 and the late 60s, it was a pretty volatile time in the U.S. And, and looking at the way that crime was depicted on screen, I think there is some value to that. Absolutely. And and it's funny because it, we're, we're not trying to make with any of these films, we're not trying to make any connection to a specific film influenced that, that was either influenced by or influenced 
events at the time. But we're looking at these films insofar as how they actually represent the time, how they reflect the time. And in the case of these crime films uh, that we're talking about, specifically in the case of Targets, um, I, I hope that you, after listening to this conversation, will share with us that, uh, that in fact, Targets was a, was a fascinating reflection of the time, the late 60s, and in particular, the year 1968. It's a very tricky thing making a film because you can be timely, but because a film takes us such a long period of time to to write and get made and edit and then go through the distribution process, it can be quite a bit of time that elapses before it actually hits theaters. So, you know, inevitably there will be some lag in some ways or in in the case of this one, which we'll talk about. Um, the way that things changed between the time it made and ended up getting released. And in particular, you start to see that there is lag after the film, lag in terms of how the film is released, in how the film is received, in how the film is ultimately remembered over the long arc of history. And uh, no greater example of the rough seas of memory uh, is there than in the film Targets. And what's nice about this series also, I feel, is um, looking at these films that are celebrating their 50th anniversary and how prevalent are they today? Do they still say something that matters to today's audience? Or is it has it become a film that is relegated to the past? That will be another interesting thing to explore with this particular series and this overarching series that we're looking at. Andy, you and I had not seen this movie going into this weekend. That's correct. This was my first time watching the film. Is it what you expected? That may not be may not be a completely fair question to ask of me because I knew what it was. I, like oh. I knew the story. I, I walked into this having a good idea as to what the concept was. Um, I just hadn't seen it, but I yeah, I, I kind of knew what I was. Oh, I, into. that feels like you cheated. Maybe. Yeah, no, it also doesn't help that I watched his uh, his um, introduction to the film before I watched it, which also gave a lot away. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I saved that uh, after. Yeah, I didn't know what it was about. I saw the the artwork uh, for the movie and I knew that there were uh, sniper sights involved. There were guns. There were probably going to be some guns. I had no idea that it was going to be such a prescient uh, uh, testimonial on the nature of gun restriction, gun regulation uh, in this country, now 50 years old. I had no idea that that was coming, and I was deeply moved by the movie. It um, it really holds no punches, and that's what I found most intriguing about the film, um, watching it for the first time, is, yeah, exactly how, how prescient it felt, how uh how really um it it felt timely for when it was made 1968 coming on the heels of some other uh horrible instances that i'm sure we'll talk about but nowadays with everything else that has been going on um it really feels uh just absolutely um just painful and horrifying to to watch a film like this and just see how it unfolds and i think the the most interesting part for me was kind of the uh the relationship between boris karloff's character 
uh, and this killer and and how and kind of the the change in monsters and what a monster was uh, when he was acting in his earlier roles and what monsters were in 1968 and certainly all the way up through present day. That was the most interesting thing for me. It was this it's sort of a dissertation on the change of horror, right? The things that we find fantastical, the f- things that we're we're scared of and the fact that they captured this this feeling of terror to just go outside, uh, you know, to be outside that is that that the out of doors is under siege, is under threat. Uh, is as Bogdanovich says, it's that's modern horror. Speaking about 1968, right? And that's the that's the context shift we're trying to make for uh, you know certainly for Karloff to to demonstrate that these two parallel stories, uh, this aging horror actor and this modern horror, are going to come to come to head. But Tim O'Kelly, I don't really have a memory of Tim O'Kelly, and after this movie, it looks like he all but disappeared. He is the the young uh, assassin right yeah uh he he was a uh somebody that bogdanovich cast very specifically because he had that kind of americana boyish look that just felt very pure very american very straight cut and clean and uh just was somebody who uh fit the part of this horrifying character that um that ties into somebody like uh, like uh, Charles Whitman, uh, and and just you know that that who was the you know the tower sniper at the University of Texas, and he was looking for somebody who had that vibe, and he certainly found it in Tim O'Kelly, who yes, I found incredibly effective in this role. And you're right, he did not act for very long after this. His his career was relatively short lived, and I think. Um, it was one of those things where even Bogdanovich was like surprised cause he's like, he did a great job. I don't know what happened to him. I would love to have seen him continue his career, but yeah, because he had that, it, it was that it sure it was that, uh, Americana feel, right. And, and you're right. When you look at these images side by side of, of, you know, Charles Whitman, uh, and, and Tim O'Kelly, you get that same sort of like all American, kid you know uh whitman had the high and tight he was a, a you know looks like a much more recent release from the uh, armed forces but he uh definitely had that kind of robotic happiness to him uh tim o'kelly right he was this guy that you know when he leaves the gun shop just how enthusiastic he was to you know whether he was eating a baby ruth or you know buying uh excessive amounts of ammunition and and that i think is one of the things for me that made him such a, a terrifying character, right? What What is it that when you look at him, uh, you know, made him scary? Well, I think that is what is depicted so wonderfully here is really nothing about him is by nature scary. He seems pretty straight-laced and, and normal, as as you would say i mean there are moments about his character that are a little off putting like when he when we first see him come home from the gun shop um and he's looking around his house and he's looking at all the pictures of his you know he's got a war photo and his family photo and his wife at some uh honeymoon or something and you get a sense of his life but it's also just a little peculiar because he spends a lot of moments and the film lingers on him kind of staring at these photos for a, a good amount of time before his wife realizes that he's come home and says, hey, we're all here. Let's, you know, let's watch the show or whatever they were doing. And it's 
it's just moments like that that just are are ever so slightly off-putting. And I think that's what is most effective about the film is how normal everything is about this guy. Yet there's just a little a little hint of something that's that's wrong. Um, the other scene for me that really stood out as as intensely um, uncomfortable was when his wife comes home from work. And I, I don't know if she was a, a waitress or something, but she comes home and it's the middle of the night and he's sitting up in bed in the dark smoking. And it is dark, like pitch black. And the way that it's lit is just beautifully dark, just ha- haunting. And every time he puffs on the cigarette, you just get that light on his face. And then um, she comes home and he's, you know, talk. they have a little conversation before she goes to bed, but it's all done in the dark. And he tells her he doesn't want the lights on because it's hurting his eyes. Um, it just, it's, it's beautifully done as the scene, but it's also really off-putting about this character. And I think that's what we're getting here is, is these moments that, that seem so normal, but there's something slightly off about them. So by the time we see him, and you know, go to the tower and, and start picking off people on the freeway, we're really getting a good sense. And we already have a sense like he's eyeballing Orloff through his his scope when he's in the gun shop. He's eyeballing his uh, his father through the target when they're doing target practice. He, he you know there's always an excuse and everything, and and so it just adds to that uncomfortable vibe we get with this guy. And it all comes to fruition when his wife comes home and uh, he or you know she just woke up and she comes into the room and he shoots her point blank. Oof. I I think uh, I want to talk about that sequence uh but i just a comment on what you said there i mean that that sequence in the dark when she comes home from work i think you're absolutely right what happened immediately before that sequence i think it was he he went to the gun shop was buying a bunch of ammunition or something he had we we it's revealed that he has all those guns and uh there's something that happens right before it and now the the order of operations escapes me but it sitting in the dark i was not like i was convinced that he was laying next to a body like i like that he that was going to be the big shock it wasn't just the gun on the night table i thought oh my god she's going to turn the light on and he's going to be next to somebody that he shot like his mom and it's going to be there so i was already sort of primed for horror um when the sequence starts the next day after he writes the letter uh and we see that super close-up die in red uh type uh yeah so well, because we see his wife leave, um, she goes to work. They're having a conversation. She goes to work. And then I, I think it's like... Yeah, the parent, they're all watching TV. Right. And he has that that just super creepy moment where um, he kind of is sitting by himself for a moment. Um, and he goes... And it's it's these shots are done like in single long takes, which it's it's so just nice. It really puts you into this guy's head. Where he, you know, his wife leaves and he kind of has that like moment where he, um, you know, OCD folds her sweater perfectly and then puts it away. And then he he goes, um, I think he his parents are watching TV in the other room and he just kind of sits on a chair for a little bit, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. And then he goes out the door, like the swinging door over to his um, to his car and we don't see him again until... Um, uh, until that dark shot. And yeah, the way that that's constructed, I felt like he was leaving the room to go 
uh, kill his parents. Yeah, to do something gross. It's totally constructed that way. Okay, well, I'm glad we agree. Uh, then we actually get the the murder sequence, and and this is really tightly woven into the the actual history of the Whitman thing, all the way down to you know Whitman um, killing his his mother and. Uh, his wife, he, he did it in this case with a knife and and not a gun. Uh, but the the little details like, you know, I'll say, quote, burying his victims, his wife and his mother in their beds or in blankets and kind of, you know, keep pre- sort of preserving them a little bit of a ceremonial bent there. Um, and, and we get a little bit of that here with this uh, with this exchange, that sequence when his wife comes in to kiss him and we get that series of really disjointed cuts uh, of her approaching him, his hand on the gun, her approaching him a little bit closer, his hand on the gun, moving it past the typewriter. He, she approaches him for the kiss. His gun comes up and we see it just sort of graze her nightgown and then she falls away. There isn't a lot of gore in this movie. It's it's remarkably gore-free given the subject matter, but that's sequence was, uh, you know, that introduces us to his mindset. And it it's, you know, uh, super terrifying, uh, you know, because it perfectly captures this, you know, you never know who you think, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting how much they patterned after Whitman and how they really kind of built this story with a lot of those similarities, like the way that he killed his mother, the way he killed his wife. Um, the way he kills, I mean, in the, in the movie, he kills the grocery man who happens to be there, uh, delivering groceries in, in Whitman's case, he actually, uh, when he's killing his wife, um, he was typing a letter and then he wrote, uh, in the letter, it says friends interrupted eight, eight, one Monday, 3 AM, both dead. It's like, so he kills some friends who heard a gunshot, you know, and came over and it's it's the same kind of horrifying, uh, you know, sep- uh, uh, separation that he has from everything that's playing out that we see here, the way he cleans everything up and then the way that he kind of goes off to the highway and starts uh, picking people off there. It's really just shocking. Meanwhile, <laughs> we have this <laughs> absolutely uneventful story. Uh, which in any other movie without this parallel sort of horror show going on might have been an interesting bit of drama. Uh, And that is the story of Boris Karloff's character playing essentially Boris Karloff. And uh, he is retiring from the business. He doesn't like the horror business anymore. And it's all of the, the mechanics around trying to get him to agree to do this public appearance to not give up on the last screenplay uh, that uh, everybody seems to want him to play. And uh, ultimately, uh, we're meandering through this character drama and a little bit of comedy uh, so that we can get to the point where these two stories meet together. Uh, What do you think of the Karloff angle? I, you know, I think because Karloff is in it and the way that he is just portraying this, uh, this alternate version of himself as Byron Orloff, I find it just so endearing. His character is so uh, touching, and uh, you really uh, can can connect with this this actor who just doesn't feel like he's fitting in and is just tired of of seeing the drivel that he's doing and just wants to kind of uh, throw in the towel. I I really am touched by all of the stuff going on with him and and the the people and it just you're right it feels so. Um, 
uh, normal and um, I don't want to say not interesting, but it just seems kind of like everyday life in Hollywood. And to that end, it's like, okay. Um, and, and the interesting thing is because these are intercut, these two stories, you know, there's a point to that interconnectedness of these two stories. Um, and that somehow everything is going to tie together. You just don't exactly know how. Um, I know at the beginning, you see him kind of eyeballing Orloff through his scope at, at the store and, but not as with the intention of, I'm going to kill this guy. It's just, He's doing it because he's creepy, and and that's how he kind of checks these things out, and um and I, the way that everything ended up coming together, I think worked really effectively, and I didn't have a problem with the drastic separation we have between these two storylines. If anything, it reminded me of many of the types of films that you would see coming from like Robert Altman or um, even. Uh, 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 Paul Thomas Anderson, where you just had a lot of story threads and you were following everyone's stories and waiting to see if there would be some con- something that would connect them all together. In this particular case, it is exactly that type of film. And I think it works really well blending these two um, uh, vastly different stories together. Well, it really does. And, and it's this Karloff angle that makes the movie quiet. Right. It makes the movie just sort of uh, uh, paced. I don't want to say meandering, but uh, it's a movie that just sort of moves uh, fluidly through the life of this guy. It allows us to really live inside some uh, great dialogue. Really like some of the wit between uh, Orlock and his assistant, Jenny. Uh, love Bogdanovich's character. He plays uh, this director and writer, Sammy Michaels, uh, and um, uh, he's ends up being a fantastic foil uh, and uh, a little bit of drunken comedy that comes in here. All of this is going on while this just serious nastiness is happening with Bobby Thompson. I love that you bring up the point where he's he's looking through the site from the gun store at Orlock uh, because that ends up, you're right, being just this sort of everyday thing. He's just sighting the weapon. Uh, and by the end of the movie, you realize how these two meandering stories are going to to just sort of flow together at the uh, at the end. As soon as I heard the, um, you know, I, I need you to make this appearance at the drive-through sequence, and he said, I don't want to make the appearance at the drive-through. Okay, I'll make the appearance at the drive-through. Um, you, you know that that's where it's going to end up, and it ends up building a, an incredibly powerful intensity, um, you know, toward what we what we know is to come. And now I think the gift of hindsight of this movie that we have fifty years of experience with these sort of mass, um, you know, gun attacks, uh, it makes it all, that much more intense. And I don't know a lot of movies that have this, that, that give you this sense of perspective and become more intense this way. We know what the, what the experience of these mass, um, mass attacks are like now personally, like not, maybe not personally, but we've, we've seen so many of them and the numbers are only growing that when we watch this movie that comes from an arguably much more innocent time, um, like we have the gift of knowing where we ended up that Bogdanovich and team did not have. Uh, and, and yet they still captured this experience that is now more intense uh, f- for for us today, I think. And, and in that regard, the movie, I guess you could say, has aged well, uh, that it, it's telling a story that is as resonant today as it ever was. Oh, absolutely. This film is as, as uh, hard-hitting as... I mean, I don't know if you watched the animated... Uh, documentary 
tower that is about Charles Whitmore, Whitman yeah. and yeah, and, and the tower at the University of Texas um, back in '66. Uh, yeah, it is incredibly uh, powerful documentary that is certainly worth watching. That gives you a really interesting perspective on everything that happened that day and just how horrifying it was. And, you know, then you put this on and this, you know, this hits home just as strongly as that does, because, I mean, it's obviously from a different perspective, but it uh, it has that power and that resonance that uh, makes it feel very authentic. Uh, the lack of score, I think, may also help with that. It just everything feels um, much more close to reality the way that it's depicted within the film. There are some little behavioral things too, Bobby, the, the way he drives. Uh, you, you just know he's not up to any good when we first meet him, <laughs> you know, hustling around that great Mustang. And he's he's a terrible driver, terrible driver. I thought he was going to hit that kid on a bike. Uh, <laughs> right. um, so we go from uh, this to uh, Voyage of the Planet of Prehistoric Women to the last picture show. And what's up, Doc? Uh, would not really have seen that coming. Uh, we got to talk about uh, the dichotomy that is Peabog. Um, this, this is what the New York Times review of this film had to say. Why the invariable question of today's headlines about the random sniper murder of innocent people is never answered in targets. This is the only flaw and a serious one in the original and brilliant melodrama that opened yesterday at the 46th Street Embassy Theater. Except on this one count, which simply can't be ignored, this admirably spun and gripping little movie whose only name is Boris Karloff marks a most auspicious feature debut for a young Peter Bogdanovich, a former film writer and historian who has now taken the plunge, camera in hand. He should never let go. Uh, it was published August 14, 1968. The Venerable Howard Thompson. Uh, this, this movie is one of those that uh, defined Peter Bogdanovich behind the camera and at the pen. It really did. Uh, he was... Already kind of a, um, I mean, he was in the industry. He had been working uh, before he even started kind of in film, making film projects. He was already working as a writer, uh, but more as kind of a, a documentarian writer or a news writer. He was interviewing directors, um, writing writing books and, and, and articles about, you know, their projects and what they were doing. And and he he talked to a lot of great directors like Howard Hawks and Alfred Hitchcock and um, and learned a lot from them about how to do this before he started working with Corman. And when he was working with Roger Corman, that certainly is a place where, uh, I mean, as we know, Roger Corman is one of those producers who really came or really, uh, you know, his his goal was always to make money uh, with his films. And according to him, every movie that he's made has been profitable. It's it's you know, it's a really interesting thing because he does things with such low budgets and he'll do whatever it takes to make something effective that is actually going to uh, to find a way to make its money back. And uh, I think that he had certainly done that here and and working with Bogdanovich, I believe what was the film that Bogdanovich was working on with him uh, before this one? I, Bogdanovich was working as a writer. Um, yeah. Before this, it was um, Wild Angels. He worked right. out yep. doing some some writing on the Wild Angels with him, and that's the um, uh, the famous Peter Fonda 
uh, film where you have that uh, that great bit of dialogue where they're um, he's in court and uh, you know he's we want to be free we want to be free to do what we want to do and that's what we're going to do and that you know that is used in the song that uh, is featured so prominently in um, World's End. That's right. <laughs> that's the that's the movie. That's the so, movie. Yes. Okay. So that's the Wild Angels. He worked yeah. on uh, as a writer with that, and then Corman was really found him just he connected a lot with him and said you know let's have you direct something and so he uh yeah he said sure he was ready to do that and and this is the film that uh he wanted to do it was nice that corman let him come up with something he didn't say here i've got this this horror script uh, that i want you to handle he just said what do you want to do and um, this is what he came up with, but he he gave him certain rules. And I think yeah, I love these are the best. The it's part. the conditions, right? Like, right. You can do whatever yeah. you want, but here's who you got to work with. What's great is is Roger Corman had worked with Boris Karloff in the past on a film called The Terror, um, and maybe others. I, I'm actually not quite sure, but Boris Karloff owed Roger Corman uh, two days of work, and and so what uh, the stipulations were with Peter Bogdanovich, Roger Corman said. You can make your movie, but you have to uh, shoot with Boris Karloff for two days. You also have to use 20 minutes of this other movie I made of his called The Terror, which takes place in, um, you know, it's a historical uh, horror that took place in, in you know, war-torn France, I believe. And and uh, then you can, you know, shoot uh, the rest of it, come up with on your own. And so he was trying to come up with a story that made sense. He's like, well, this this movie doesn't make any sense. You know, I want to make a modern uh, movie, but I can't tie in this footage from this other movie very effectively. It's going to be silly. And so he he was working with his then wife, Polly Platt, and just kind of off the cuff was just like, oh, you know, what if we what if we have it where he's an actor and we show the footage of this movie in it like it's his uh, it's his actual movie and and it, we cut we show the ending of it and then we cut to a screening room and he's like oh what a terrible movie and and they they laughed about this and he's like wait a minute maybe that is That's a great, great idea, idea. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and hence this this movie was born and it, he had been wanting to make a movie about a Whitman or somebody had suggested it to him and so he was very kind of interested in that and tying uh, Karloff in on that seemed like an interesting uh, idea for him. Right. Well, it's a brilliant idea. And uh, and at the same time, uh, it, Bogdanovich is having a conversation with uh, Harold Hayes, who served as the editor at, at uh, Esquire, where um, Bogdanovich had been writing and suggested, hey, you know, you should make a movie about the Whitman thing. Uh, and. Uh, you know, as he says in this introduction, Bogdanovich, he says, Karloff was pretty old fashioned compared to someone who just goes to a tower and randomly shoots people. That's modern horror. Uh, that that line really stuck with me because, you know, watching him come to terms with how he was going to weave all of these sort of constituent elements, these requirements for working with Corman, for getting this movie made, for using all of the terror stuff and telling a new original story. Um, you know, a high, a, a not even that highly fictionalized story uh, of a current event and weaving it all together. It's just smart filmmaking. It really is. That's what really um, caught me when I watched the film is how brilliantly he executed all these things. And and he was really nervous because as he was writing this, he's just like, well, I only have um, a Karloff for two days. And, and Samuel Fuller, the director, who was also a friend of Bogdanovich's, 
told him because uh, he had actually kind of he came on and, and helped him rework the script and everything. He said, don't worry about that sort of stuff. Just write the story you want to write. And if it ends up that he needs to end up working more days, they'll figure that out later or they'll have you rewrite it. But right now, write the script the way you want it to be. And and that's what they did. And, and they ended up shooting with Karloff for five days. But um, uh, and luckily, because uh, because he did push to get the script the way that he felt it needed to be. And it was a very smart script, very smart script. And we should say uh, Samuel Fuller, his full name was Samuel Michael Fuller. Uh, and that ended up being the name of the character that Bogdanovich plays, Sammy Michaels, uh, as a nod to his buddy. I think that's that's very sweet. It's very it charming. Is. That's great. <laughs> uh, shooting on uh, shooting on freeways, though, is turns out is hard to do. Yeah, you're not supposed to uh, film on freeways. I mean, I'm not sure what the rules were then. Obviously, there are ways to do it. It just costs a lot of money to close freeways down, permitting, um, you're getting your locations manager to handle all of that. It can take months uh, of planning to deal with a city and and close things down. I mean, you look at something like La La Land. Obviously, they're not just running yeah. in and doing that uh, guerrilla style. I mean, it is doable. But um, back then, I'm not exactly sure how the rules were. But Corman's, I mean, uh, Bogdanovich certainly makes it sound like it was completely implausible. And especially when you're working on on uh, Roger Corman style budgets. It probably is completely implausible to actually do. And when you're filming on on the freeway, I was actually surprised to see what they filmed on the freeway, not just the stuff when they filmed on the freeway where they're driving and stuff like that from car to car. And obviously, that's guerrilla style filmmaking, and they pulled it off effectively. Um, it's, it's the type of stuff that a lot of filmmakers have probably done. And as long as you're doing it safe, uh, then, you know, you can get away with it. Um, but I was really surprised to see the part where he's up on the tower and he's picking off people as they're driving by and you're seeing car after car of people swerving and screeching off the side of the road. And I can only imagine what the people who are on the freeway were thinking when they kept seeing these things happening. Sequences where people are, you know, these cars that are obviously in the production, these cars are, uh, you know, careening off the side of the road and people are falling out of them, uh, you know, clearly getting shot. Right. I mean, it it's there was I can't even imagine being in a car passing uh, what was going on with some of those uh, those bits at the side of the road. It's terrifying. The only thing that I could think of, which I, I honestly I can't imagine that they would have done because it would go against guerrilla style filmmaking. And if a cop happened by, he would have stopped them. But if they had put up a sign before cars were getting to that point saying filming up ahead or something yeah, like right, that, just right. so people were at least aware of it. But again, I, I can't imagine they were doing that because. A cop well, would then stop them. Right. And that, but they then have a, a cop car come by, lights and sirens blazing, <laughs> driving through the sequence. Yeah. And after the at the end of this movie, I, I couldn't help but think, I, I wonder if they just shot. That was a legit cop car, uh, you know, chasing their production. <laughs> wonder, yeah, right. wonder if they got nailed. Um, I didn't. Well, I didn't think to look if it actually had a, a city information on the side of the car, because that's usually yeah, how that's you can tell sign, if it's a movie right? cop car, because it's just police, you know, something <laughs> yeah, very right, vague. Right. <laughs> Call five, 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 one, two. One, two. <laughs> right. Now, of course, uh, the the advice, save your money for the finish kid from Samuel Fuller. Uh, and he did. The most expensive sequence of the film is the, the end of the film uh, where they actually shoot at the uh, at the drive in movie. Um, uh, you know, not a lot of drive-ins anymore. 
Boy, this, did this, I love them though. And I know. When I was a kid. Although this doesn't help the build the case for bringing them back. No, it's um, it's done really effectively, and I can see what uh, what uh, Fuller was meaning because this is a really effective sequence, and obviously it takes place at night, so that adds complexity to it, and it there's a lot going on, and I think he arrives at the uh, at the drive-in about an hour into the film, so it's about two thirds of the way through. So, so they shot about a third of the film in about um, two thirds of the days <laughs> and then two thirds, the other two thirds of the film they shot in, in uh, just one third of the days. So six days <laughs> they, uh, cause they did, they did go over on days. They shot uh, somewhere between 18 and 22 days is what I, what I read. Um, but, but 12 of those were shot in the, uh, the drive-in. So that's a, that's a hefty chunk. That's of crazy. Your schedule. Yes. That's huge. I mean, as a producer, that's got to give you fits. Well, what I really liked reading is that he managed to stay on budget with all of that. So. <laughs> that's like producer <laughs> porn right there. <laughs> on budget. <laughs> and they only had Karloff. Man, they only had him for a day or one night. That's a, that, that's a testament. The guy's hobbling around. You see his legs? And and he clearly is a consummate professional. He he uh, Bogdanovich said he always knew his lines. He always was prepared. He'd walk on and would just nail his stuff. And you know, working in the world of Corman, you can only imagine that the, this was often get it right the first time, second time if if you didn't. Otherwise, we're moving on. And um and stuff with Karloff that night. I mean, it's it works really effectively. I I had to go back and watch the scene when he finally confronts Bobby at the end and and kind of that whole uh the shootout at the end of it and just how effective it was i found it really affecting how he just walked up to this this young boy and smacks him with his cane and slaps him around a little bit and and then he looks at him cowering in the corner is like is that what i was afraid of yeah i was really struck by the power of that line of this this old horror star um you know who was for a moment they're terrified of this modern horror only to see what it hit, what it uh, shrank to i found it incredibly affecting what's your sense of that final sequence because this is where uh, you know the the whitman case and this film part ways right whitman was killed that day after the uh, during the the shootout it was an it was a police officer who who shot and killed him right. they ran up the tower and they did kill him you're right ramiro martinez and houston mccoy Yes, right, right. Anyway, so he doesn't, uh, he he's, ends up dead. In this film, he doesn't end up dead. He ends up bested by this aging, uh, you know, B-movie, monster movie actor. And I, I wonder what your sense is of the, the statement that they're making in the film. I found it a, a little bit puzzling. Well, there's a couple, there's a couple statements. One, I think his defeat where he ends up cowering i felt like that was a statement on kind of his mental state and the lack of real control this guy had or just the sense that this was a uh, a monster but you know really one that could be taken easily when he didn't have right. a gun in his hand you know right. um so i thought there was some something there also the fact that this uh, that he says as he's walking away i i almost hit him all didn't i whatever he said it was Really hardly ever missed. Yeah. And there's, there's a statement. Hardly ever missed, did I? Yeah. Yeah. 
There and is truly the statement on mental health in the film. I, I'm always torn with this sort of thing because I find that there's some strength in in having it end that way, where now they have to face um, face their uh, their victims and they have to face the law and they have to face uh, society and be judged. And I find there to be a strength in that. But I do also feel, and I think it's just the animalistic urge when you're watching a film like this to have that that urge for revenge and to see him get his comeuppance by getting shot himself. And it's interesting. And I don't know if Bogdanovich was, was, had that in mind to have it end where this guy ends up not getting killed. And, you know, does that, ref- does it make us reflect on ourselves and what we were hoping for? You know, yeah, because there, there's a practical benefit to it, which is that we for the script, which is that we get uh, we get to see a hero moment from Karloff. We needed that. Right. And and probably it was uh, demanded uh, that, that we get a hero moment from Karloff. Uh, but th- and I agree with you on every point that. You know, we we need to have this this sense of uh, of victory, the sense that we caught the guy that he's going to face up to his to to what happened. But he clearly is was not a well individual. And if there was ever a, a um, you know, an, an opportunity to tell this kind of dark story and kill the guy in the end. Uh, let me put it this way. Had this been movie movie been made in 1978, I have no doubt that he would have died and it would have been a horrific and bloody gun battle. It would have been very different. And, yeah. um, but yeah, I, I, I do think that likely Bogdanovich was saying something specific about the way that, uh, we would deal with this sort of thing. And I think by not killing him, I think he's saying quite a bit about, about facing these monsters yeah, I, again, I, this this movie is deceptively complex, uh, if if only because of you know what we've lived through culturally in the last fifty years. Before we let it go, just one more comment on Boris Karloff. That guy was in uh, crazy health straits when he made this movie. Uh, it, it felt like he was legitimately not playing a part, as you see him walking bow legged with a cane uh, across a room, and yet he's such a star. Yeah, he had emphysema. He, I mean, he had only half a lung left at this point in his life, and uh, and he also had rheumatoid arthritis. And he would spend his time between takes in a wheelchair with an oxygen mask because he was having such a hard time. But I tell you, again, going back to my comment earlier, he was a consummate professional, and he comes through just brilliantly on screen. He really does, and um, uh, that he ended up doing more movies after this you would you would see him in this and think okay that's it that's it for boris yeah you'd think so but no this is a guy who uh i mean he was uh he was sick but he kept going he ended up um working in five more movies after this in a very short period of time i think he went off to i want to say london or somewhere he did a a story somewhere else and then he came back to la and um he shot um four movies back to back with this mexican producer luis enrique vergara who who um, brought on uh brought karloff on to do four screenplays uh written by uh jack hill kind of a b-movie guy um in a way where karloff 
all of his scenes could be shot in one three-week period for all four of those movies. So, I mean, they, he was old and they, they worked really hard to make that happen. And he died, uh, February 1969. So, um, not too long after this film was released, but he did get to see it released and he did get to live with some of the accolades that, uh, that, and the praise that came with his performance here. We get Frank Marshall, a young Frank Marshall shows up in this film. I just could not help but laugh when I saw his credit as assistant to the director. I just kept wanting to say, hi, Frank Marshall, assistant director. No, assistant Assistant to to the the director. director. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that just cracked me up. But yeah, he he also got to start with Corman and clearly with Bogdanovich. And they worked together here. And he also pops in as the ticket boy. You can see when he when uh, when everybody's coming through and you see little Frank Marshall there. It's just so funny. And then I guess his parents were in it. His girlfriend at the time was in it. They were all um, film goers at the drive in. The dolly grip is there. Uh, who, he plays the father who gets killed, which I think for me was one of the most affecting shots in the film with the little boy mm-hmm. in the passenger seat. And then you pan over and see his dad dead in the seat next to him. Oh, just awful. terrifying. Yeah. So um, again, low budget. That's <laughs> the world of it. Yeah. And I think it I think they made it very effective by, you know, even if they had to bring crew on to play some of the roles. Talk just a little bit about Laszlo Kovac. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, he's behind the camera. He's not the first time that we've talked about him. Uh, but it is the first time we we get to talk about him, or it's the first film that we talk about him as Lajlo Kovac. Yes, this was uh, before this. He was Leslie, and uh, he said to Bogdanovich, he said, I, I'm going to credit myself as Laszlo on your film. I didn't want to do that until I was pleased with the way that a film came out that I had worked on which I thought was pretty funny. So uh, this was this was the first time. We can't let any conversation about the movie go by without mentioning Polly Platt, who was uh, married to Bogdanovich at the time. And between the two of them, P. Bog and P. Platt, they pretty much did the rest of everything on this movie. This was the time of, uh, you know, low budget. Uh, you're going to come on board and you're going to wear many hats. And they certainly did. I think that, uh, you know, she helped him craft the story before Bogdanovich wrote the script. And then she was the production designer and the costume designer and great use of of sets or reuse of sets, I should say. Basically, give it a new paint job and put some different furniture in it. And there it's a totally different place. <laughs> <laughs> they they do that really well. But in the world of low-budget Corman movies, it, it comes through very effectively. And I think they do it in a way where you hardly notice unless you're really paying attention to those sorts of things. Peter Bogdanovich is uncredited but uh, edited the thing uh, after a little bit of hubbub uh, with his uh, original editor. Right. Yeah. His original editor started working on the film. And um, I, I think it was the sequence when... when uh, Orlock and and Jenny are at the restaurant and they're talking to the PR guy about the the appearance and he says I'm not going to do it and the guy is freaking out and he's making his phone calls and all that. His editor was working on that scene and and Bogdanovich said it was just a terrible mess and so they had to get rid of the guy and he came on to do the editing at that point. Interestingly, the the woman he has helping on sound in this movie ends up being uh, taking over the role as his editor a little bit later. Verna, Verna Fields. Yeah, she was uh, early in her career as uh, as a sound editor. 
and she did the sound editing here and does a great job with it, especially when you know that shots like or scenes like the the uh, freeway shooting is all recorded without sound. And then they bring all that sound in after the fact. She does a great job there. Um, but yes, and then, of course, um, after this, well, I guess she was editing. It was kind of back and forth um, through the 60s. But um, for him, it was it was um, a sound editor. But then she turned into an editor for him on uh, some of his later films, like What's Up, Doc?, which we talked about, Paper Moon. And, of course, we also talked about her on Jaws, which was her last film that she edited. How does this movie of uh, mass murder uh, tie to this season of Christmas, Andy? <laughs> well, Bogdanovich had actually seen. Uh, what those a weird who've segue. Seen, it is. <laughs> anyone who's seen How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the uh, animated TV special, um, hopefully knows that Boris Karloff actually did the narration of it. And he did it brilliantly. But um, uh, Bogdanovich had seen seen it play on TV, and while he was preparing, he's just like, uh, you know, he said Karloff did such a great job. How can I do a movie with Boris Karloff and not have him tell a story in it? And from that little bit, that's how they ended up putting the scene in when they're in his hotel room prepping for the radio broadcast, and he tells the story appointment in Samara which uh, Karloff insisted on doing it in an uninterrupted take without cue cards. And he pulled it off. And I guess it's it's actually not his story. It's not. It's from something, and I can't remember what it is, but it's somebody else's story. It's, it's a very affecting story, beautifully told by Karloff. And after he did it, uh, he got an ovation from the crew because he did such a great job with it. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, this is a, a story by uh, John O'Hara. Uh, published in 1934, appointment in Samara. And there you uh, go. There you go. The, I, I love the treatment of the story where we get uh, his, uh, that slow push uh, into him telling that story with all the people, you know, that are in the room, sort of eyes on him. It was really beautifully, artfully done. Um, why did this movie not uh, spawn a franchise, do you think? <laughs> I mean, the antagonist hmm. lived. right yeah no it's not exactly sequel uh or even remake fodder although it's one of those films that i don't know (laughs) i think it told it it told the story it needed to tell yeah exactly exactly how to do it award season Uh, though you know again it it was a roger corman film uh paramount bought it and released it but it wasn't something that anyone really pushed for awards um there there are probably reasons for that um, but it is a film that has been growing in um, popularity and notoriety. And in 2017, the Boston Society of Film Critics gave it the Best Rediscovery Award because it's a film that is worth uh, rediscovering. I love that they came back to it after all those years. That, <laughs> that it doesn't get snubbed because so many years have gone by. 49 years later and they come around to it. It's about time. That's actually why people may not know. That's why we haven't talked about the movie so far is because we didn't want another non-award winning movie. We had to wait. Right. We had to wait it exactly. out. Yeah. Uh, how to do with the box office. After working hard to make films on the cheap to ensure he'd make a profit, Roger Corman gave Bogdanovich the measly sum of $130,000 to make Targets, which is just under $900,000 in today's dollars. And actually, uh, Karloff's fee for the film was $25,000, so he had, he had a hefty chunk of the budget. 
Um, it does help that uh, some of the footage was from the terror, but it still had to be a speedy production as we talked about. After the movie was made, Bogdanovich got a friend of his to get the studio head uh, of Paramount, Robert Evans, to watch it, and Evans instantly wanted to buy it. Others at his studio weren't so keen on it, though, and because of the tone, so they had to keep looking around. But eventually, Evans did manage to convince the others to buy it. So Paramount paid Corman $150,000 for the movie, instantly making it profitable uh, for Corman. The same, unfortunately, didn't hold true for Paramount. The movie was released a few months after Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy were both assassinated. And those events made Paramount nervous about the marketing of the film. And uh, so it was released very quietly. August 15th, 1968, they added a new prologue denouncing gun violence, and the film ended up losing money at the box office. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any exact figures, so that's all I have on this one. Well, it's, uh, you know, I can understand... I can certainly understand a cultural response like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, this this is one of those movies that I feel like is is worth seeing for the uh, the skill at, at tying together a tight, intense uh, and and impacting thriller uh, and doing it on the cheap. I mean, it, it demonstrates a lot of skill. And uh, I found it a lot of fun to watch, even though it was incredibly uh, difficult to to watch in some some sequences. Yeah, definitely. I think it's probably time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you'll see the list of all the movies we've talked about on this very show. Uh, you can swipe over in your show notes, tap flickchart, and that will take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up to ours. First up, we have Targets or Fat City. I'm going to go Targets. Targets for me. Yeah. Targets or Seven Samurai. Oh, Andy. I know. I got to go Seven Samurai. Yeah, I'm Seven Samurai. Targets or Mother? <laughs> that was so weird. Uh, I'm going to be, I think, Targets on this one. Ooh, really an interesting pairing, though. Yeah, troublesome. With with two troubled youths yeah. killing people. I am Targets also, though. All right. Targets or The Wizard of Oz? I have to say Oz. I know. I'll give it to you. It, would, it seems like too much of a travesty to actually rank Targets higher than Oz. <laughs> Does oh, the here's, wizard here's die a... in the end? <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's a, a fun one. Targets or escape from the planet of the apes. <laughs> uh, I, I'm uh, I, I lest we face the repercussions of our own community. I'm going to pick targets on this one. Uh, I think it's an easy one. Yeah, targets, targets or das boat. Definitely das boat. For das me. boat. Yes. Targets or wild tales. I think I'd probably go wild tales. Yeah, me too. Targets or Glengarry Glen Ross? Glengarry Glen Ross, please. Same for me. Targets or Interstellar? Interstellar. I feel like this one I actually would say Targets. All right, let's do it. Okay. All right. One, one two, two, three. three scissors. Rock. Oh, all right. All right. Sorry about that one. That's all right. That, th- it's only one space above Interstellar, not too uh, egregious of a, of yeah. a win. Uh, targets is at 125 on our chart out of 369 films how did you do on your personal chart we haven't talked about i think we skipped that on every single one of the apes movies that we just <laughs> finished uh and, and maybe for good reason but i do want to know uh, how this one ended up on your personal chart this one ended up at 929 out of 4039 which is a 77 percent. which i think is um maybe a little low but i still feel 
it's in a pretty good spot. Mine ended up at uh, 194 out of 1037, which takes it to 81. Uh, and it, that would give me a four star straight up on uh, letterbox.com slash the next reel if I were to agree with the algorithm. And I think I will do that. Yeah, I for me, I, this also is a four star and a like. Oh, yes. And a like. Slap a heart on it, Andy. There it is. All right. Uh, well, we, we've had three weeks in a row where we have been at complete agreement with our, our star ratings. I love it. On Letterboxd. I love it. That's a rare. It's like, it's like we're friends. It's like we, we've gotten see over eye to our eye. 2001 you, battle. I don't, don't bring it up. Don't bring it up. <laughs> Why would you do that? We've had so many weeks where we've been living in blissful <laughs> ignorance. <laughs> uh, where this is not part of a uh, any sort of narrative series. The series is uh, we're talking about 1968 crime films. So uh, you know, how, how do you choose where we go from here? Well, that's a great question because you know uh, our Patreon supporters did get to help us choose the films in this particular series. Uh, there was some voting involved, and uh, and with, we uh, selected four films. And uh, the next one that we're going to be talking about is Don Siegel's Coogan's Bluff. Coogan's Bluff. Yeah, some Clint Eastwood. This is another one that uh, that we hadn't seen. So correct. What a fantastic surprise uh, this shall be. And, and have you watched it yet? Are you ahead? I have not. All right. I have neither. not. All right. Very much looking forward to this one uh, and uh, seeing how we uh, <laughs> seeing how it compares. We I, I, was there any sense to why we put targets first? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I think that um, we just picked, you know, these were the four films that were voted on by everybody. And I just feel like it was more random than anything else that they ended up in this particular order. Well, we, we start start dark. It can only go up from here, maybe? Well, Coogan's Bluff is listed as an action comedy crime film. So, yes, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> okay. okay. I don't know about quality, Left turn but flight. certainly tone. All right. <laughs> Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel, and you can get access to our exclusive members only weekend show, the Saturday matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus, we go head to head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. So just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. You can learn more about us at thenextreel.com. You can subscribe to the show for free in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Next Reel. And don't forget, you can always join our free Discord channel, our open community Discord channel. Uh, you can find a link to that over at thenextreel.com. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram, Ben Lott running all things on Twitter, and of course, thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to this show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon sometimes doeth. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't. I, that's part of the trouble of having such a quiet release. Like the, the movie doesn't have, uh, it doesn't feel like it has a massive uh, following today. Now, the uh, cult following it. And as such, there are no one or two star reviews on Amazon. 
And so you've had to find a new barrel of which to scrape the bottom. Oh, I did. Yes, I I dug into the the uh, audience reviews on good old Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, that's grim, Andy. Grim, yes. grim when you it, have it, to do that. <laughs> it can be. It can be. But there I sit. Well, I'll go ahead and start. I, I did end up with a three star from Amazon uh, because I guess I just wasn't as industrious or smart as you, and so I stayed in this barrel and scraped the sides. Uh, Sacramat says unsettled and unsettling debut. Brilliant. It is not still. There's enough going on in targets to warrant a viewing of Peter Bogdanovich's first film between the shoestring budget and having to skillfully horn in previously shot footage of Boris Karloff. The finished product is probably much more refined and linear than anyone should expect. Karloff is a real treat. His turn in targets is appropriately campy with an empathetic and sunny demeanor, despite the film's bleak trajectory. Targets is a quick 90 minutes or so, but portions of it still feel labored with unnecessary sequences, superfluous conversations and lingering freeway shots that make you wonder if Bogdanovich raided the Caltrans closet of 405 stock footage one too many times. Beyond Karloff, most of the acting is hokey to the point of pain. What? And thank God Bogdanovich settled in behind the camera, not in front. What? Still, putting this 1968 film into context, it goes directions that were surely verboten at the time. If Targets was what it took to get Bogdanovich noticed, I'm all for it. The last picture show and Paper Moon were just around the corner. Two of the great pieces of cinema I still manage to watch at least once a year. Okay, I disagree with a lot of that second paragraph, but the first, uh, yeah, I get it. I get it. I can see where he's coming from. And I appreciate the, uh, uh, the, the, the clarity of that review. I, I think I can agree with that for the most part. But yes, I would agree with your statements. There's some stuff in there. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Come on, man. Come on. Yes. All right. But then again, you have Jared E. over on Rotten Tomatoes who gives it two and a half stars and says simply somewhat creative, not very scary. Boris Karloff is weird. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Jared. That's Jared. You know what? <laughs> I'm going to go read Sacramats again. Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season eight, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. I hope it's harder than season seven was. Mm, okay, first up, the Odyssey films. <laughs> Easy. 2001, 2010. Okay, Planet of the Apes. Oh my goodness. Planet of the Apes. Great book. <laughs> 1968 Best Picture nominees. Uh, okay, well, The Line of Winter. Oliver, uh, from Oliver Twist, Romeo and Juliet, of course. Um, was Rachel Rachel based on a book? It was Margaret Lawrence's A Jest of God, also on Audible. Awesome. Yeah, we have covered a lot of great movies that started as books. Books like Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls. And Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, both of which were part of our Ingrid Bergman series. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, it takes a lot of time. 
We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and they have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. (laughs) 